I would invite you to find Ecclesiastes chapter 11 while you're finding that spot in Scripture. Let me just briefly summarize uh, where we have been and where we're going over the next two weeks. We have two weeks left in our study through Ecclesiastes this Sunday and next. And as we've been working through this book, we have been just studying some of the highlights of uh, this uh, Old Testament book and looking at some of the main themes that run through the text. And so we've spent some time around them. And over the last, last week, this week, and next week, we're looking at sort of a sub-series, I guess, on the issue of God's will, which is a very large conversation and often a frustrating conversation and a conversation that um, lots of folks are maybe a little bit misguided on. In fact, I was thinking this morning on my shelf, I have multiple books written by various writers and authors trying to get our minds around this concept and this idea of God's will. So we want to talk a little bit more about that this morning. Let me begin by asking you a question that we won't really answer until much later, a couple of hours from now, we'll maybe come to an answer to that. Not that long, about 40 minutes or so, half an hour. We'll hopefully come to some conclusion on um, this and understand this a little bit better. But let me begin by asking you this question. Is it okay for a believer to follow their dreams? Is it okay? Well, before you answer that question, let me remind you of a New Testament verse that I want us to think about as we think about the question I just asked, can we follow our dreams? And we'll answer that in a little bit. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, he said, I came that they may have life and have it in absolute misery. Is that what God said? No. If you know the New Testament even a little bit, you probably are aware that Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it how? Abundantly. I find it difficult to understand how an abundant life in Christ can be this life of confusion and desperation of desperately trying to find this mysterious, mystical, hidden somewhere will of God. And sometimes we use it in very mystical terms. And as we studied last week, if you were not here perhaps, that much of God's will, much of God's will is in fact given to us in Scripture through decrees and commandments. God has said these are particular things that you as a believer in Christ are commanded to do. And you are given these commandments so that you will follow them. And living within these boundaries of God's commandments is, in fact, the way to experiencing an abundant life. But so often, when we come to this issue of God's will, which we'll clarify more in a moment, is that we really take, as I described last week, the magic eight ball approach. And we kind of walk around with our magic eight ball, shake it up, and just hope that maybe if I'm one of the lucky ones, I will find, discover God's will. And so often we maybe poke fun at people that spend a lot of time and energy worrying about their horoscope and what their horoscope said. And yet in very real observation of life, I would suggest that even as believers, we live much more like that than we would like to admit. As if God's will is this mysterious 
approach, and as I said and want to say it again, is that much of God's will, the vast majority of God's will, is defined for us clearly in Scripture. Now, here's where we get ourselves worked up. And I don't know a better term to put on this, and so I'll hopefully explain it a little bit, but much of what we wrestle with are, in a sense, non-moral decisions. The reason I hesitate to use the word non-moral is because what I am not saying is that they're unimportant. But what I am saying is that there is a very real distinction between decisions of morality, should I commit adultery or not, should I steal or not, should I murder or not, should I bear false witness or not, those are issues of clearly defined morality. And where we struggle, these are major decisions. I am not dismissing that. But where we wrestle so often is my choice of college, my my choice of major, career, where do I want to live? Now, these decisions will impact you for years and years and years and decades and sometimes for the rest of your life. So they shouldn't be taken flippantly. And we'll talk more specifically next week on a grid through which we can make some of these decisions. But arguably, and I used this one last week as an illustration, arguably the greatest decision that you will ever make in your life apart from salvation, whether or not I will receive Christ as my Savior or I will reject His offer of redemption through Christ, that is the most significant decision that you will ever make in your life. In fact, God said in His Word that He is not willing that any should perish and that all should come to repentance. What that means is God's desire is for you and for me and unbelievers to put their faith in His Son and experience Him for all of eternity. That is God's desire. But He still gives you the opportunity to either accept and believe in Christ or reject God's offer of redemption. That is the most important decision you will ever make in your life. The second most important, in my opinion, is who you will marry. That is a huge decision. And as we talked last week, the idea that there is this one person out of billions that I've got to spend my life trying to find, I wrestle with that idea and would say that that is not what Scripture teaches us. There are, however, boundaries, clear boundaries around who I decide that I am going to marry. When I met Michelle a long time ago, Michelle Van Ness at the time, And as we built our relationship, as we got to know each other, as she was my best friend, there was no denying in my life she was the woman that I wanted to marry. I wanted to spend the rest of my life with and still do. That's my wife. That is the wife that God providentially brought into my life. And when when I knew her, there was no other person in my life that I even thought that I wanted to be married to. And so God does direct those things into our lives, but we also understand that there are decisions in our life that come to us that are not necessarily decisions of right and wrong. Instead, they are decisions of good, better, and optimal. 
Or maybe you could say it this way, good, better, or best. Where should I live? What college should I go to? Those are very big decisions. Those are decisions that should be weighed. And we'll talk again more next week about how we do that. And we certainly want to understand the impact that these decisions have in our lives. But before we get into some more details about this idea of God's will, I want us to remember this very basic truth. The Bible never teaches that if you want to do something that it's inherently wrong to pursue it. In fact, as I mentioned last week, when God says and he gives the qualifications of a pastor, the very first one is he who desires the office of a bishop desires a good thing. The one desire in the verse is the word epithumia, which is often translated as lust after. That is a desire, a very strong desire. Where did that desire come from? From my magic eight ball? Should I go into ministry? Don't think so. Ah, man, should I go into ministry? Yes. Oh, shoo. Where did I come from? It came from God. There is this desire, this, this want to. My friend of mine in seminary, I'll never forget this illustration, preaching class. He was preaching that passage, he who desires the office of a bishop desires a good thing. And he said, the desire to be a pastor is like taking a, a beach ball and taking it into the swimming pool and pushing it underwater and no matter how you try to keep it, it just keeps coming back. It won't let you go. It just keeps consuming you. And so that desire for you may not be to desire for the office of a bishop, but there may be a God-given desire in your life of something you desire to do for the right reasons and for the right purpose, that I want to do that to bring glory to God. And sometimes those desires become so life-dominating, we don't understand why other people don't have them. Well, where did that come from? Well, Psalm 37 says this, delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Notice that very first word is delight. Delight in what? Yourself? No. Delight in money? No. Delight in possessions? No. Delight in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. He says in verse 5, commit your way to the Lord and trust in him and he will act. Notice the picture. That if I'm delighting in God, if I'm committed to his way and I am trusting him, he will act and I will have this God-given passion and desire to do something that God has placed in my heart this passion to do. Now, the other side of this ditch is the Bible does not teach us that if you don't want to do something, you ought to do it. This is the theology of God-inflicted misery. In other words, as one person said last week, that they were taught the more miserable you are in life, the more you must love God. How does that fit with abundant life? How does that fit with this picture of following God and delighting yourself in the Lord and committing your ways before Him? Now, I also want to add this. This doesn't mean that everything in life that we're asked to do is fun and pretty and wonderful. As I said, as I like to say, adulting is hard at times. Being responsible is difficult. Being a mature believer in Christ doesn't mean you always get to do only what you want to do. If I only did what I absolutely always felt like doing every day, that might be a pretty short list. 
But the ultimate desire, the Bible teaches that you should delight in doing whatever God has equipped you to do. I've heard business writers say it this way. Find your passion in life and you will never work a day in your life. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm living that every day. I don't feel like I work. I love what I do. I don't dread coming into the office. I don't dread Mondays. I love Mondays. I have a passion for what I do. Is all of it fun? No. Are there days that I wish I had stayed in bed? Yeah, absolutely. It's not always easy, but there is this passion. There is this desire. So let's go now to Ecclesiastes 11 and start to fill in some more puzzle pieces in this and what Solomon tells us. We want to go back to verse um, 9 for just a moment and just rehearse what we talked about last week. Solomon says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. Now we're going to come back to that phrase in a little bit of what that means and what it doesn't mean. But we do, we did draw this principle last week is that, as I mentioned, there should be joy in what you do. You should be having rejoicing in your life. And then at the latter part of verse 9, he tells us this, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. And we talked about revering God in my day-to-day decisions. I am thinking about this perspective, this decision from God, and the word revere means that I am respecting God and regarding God with a tinge of awe and reverence for Him, because He will judge my life. He will hold me accountable for my decisions, which leads us to verse 10. Okay, so now I want to try to make this decision. It's not a question of, should I kill my neighbor? No. Should I go out and commit adultery? No. Should I lie on my taxes and misrepresent my taxes? No. This is a question of, okay, how do I prepare myself to make wise decisions? What college to go to? What major to go into? What job to take? What city to live in? Who to marry? Well, Solomon's going to give us a couple more requirements here of how we prepare ourselves for those decisions. Number one, in verse 10, he says this, Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Solomon tells us in verse 10 that there are certain hindrances in your life that are keeping you from joy and they are keeping you from experiencing this abundance of life in pursuing God's will for my life. Well, he says that we are to remove two very destructive choices and two very strong impediments to us becoming more and more in tune with God's direction in our lives. This word removed, by the way, is a Hebrew word, sohor. It is an imperative. It is a commandment. It means to turn aside or to turn from a particular course. Now, I want to say this. This verb, remove, is often used in issues dealing with moral choices. In a sense, this word, you can think about it this way. The the word could be used of a person that is going down the road of an immoral lifestyle. And he says there are certain 
sinful choices that you are making that you must remove. You have to put them away. If you're going to experience joy and the wonder of being within God's direction and being able to discern where God is leading me in my life. Well, what are we to remove? The first one is we are to remove sorrow. The ESV translates this word as vexation. It is the Hebrew word kahas. It means irritation, frustration, grief, sorrow, anguish from your heart. You could say it this way, and notice what he says. He says, remove vexation from your heart, from your soul. Get rid of this Get rid of this angst, this frustration that is driving your emotional stress. Now, if I was going to pick an English word to summarize this Hebrew word, every word, English, Hebrew, Greek, Spanish, doesn't matter, they all have a range of meaning. In what sense is that word being used in that particular context. We do this all the time in English. We don't think about it because we speak English. Well, every other language works the exact same way. In this context, if I was going to pick a particular word that is going to capture what Solomon is talking about, it would be the word anger. Put away sorrow, vexation, frustration. Ugh and anger from your soul. Why? Because it's destroying you. Because it is rotting you from the inside out. It might be that when we talk about words like joy and passion and living a life that is as exciting and, and wonderful, you may be saying, I don't understand that because my heart is so wrapped up and wrenched with just frustration and vexation and anger and resentment. Solomon says, you have to remove it because it is a hindrance to you. It's a hindrance to your life. And by the way, if you are consumed with anger, you're not going to be able to discern what city to live in or who to marry or some of these other major decisions if you are a person that is driven by this vexation and anger. Solomon had said it this way in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 9 when he said, be not quick in your spirit to become angry for anger lodges in the bosom of a fool. Man, I saw a fool this week. I want to tell you about him. I, um, on Monday night, I got, a, I got a phone, I don't know his name, so but I can tell you about him because he publicly made a fool of himself. Um, I got a call Monday night, a good friend of ours uh, down, in, down in Orlando uh, passed away and their pastor was ill. And so they asked me to drive down and do the funeral service, which I was honored to do and drove down and uh, did, the, did the service, which I'll give you another illustration for that in just a moment. But I was there, I got there, whatever night I got there, I don't remember. And the next day, Wednesday, Thursday, I guess it was, the next day is the day of the service, and I go out into my parking lot, stay in a hotel in Orlando, and I'm, out, I'm walking to my car, and there is this, I'm assuming they were married, husband and wife, and their two-year-old child that was sitting, two, two-ish year old child, sitting in a stroller. Well, this man was so angry. I mean, you, the veins were popping out of his neck and he's screaming he's berating her calling her names 
I won't even, I can't remotely repeat what he's saying to this poor lady. And I had my phone out thinking the three most popular numbers in uh, telephone history are 911. He was that angry. Now, the best I could tell as I started to get into my car trying to wrestle through what do I do, the best I could tell the reason he was so out of control mad is because she had forgotten to buy enough baby food. Now, Orlando is an interesting place, but guess what? They have grocery stores. Did you know that? And like you could drive right down the road and buy some. But man, you would have thought that this poor lady had committed the cardinal, cardinal sin. Well, eventually they got in the car and they stormed off or whatever. And I was thinking about this text saying, that's a fool. He just absolutely proved to the entire parking lot, there's like volleyball team over here getting on their bus. And I'm sure they were like, what in the world? Solomon says, you need to remove that. Because if you are consumed with this kind of anger, just remember what James says in James 1 verse 20, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You, you cannot have this pursuit of righteousness in your life if you are a person that is consumed with vexation and frustration and anger and resentment. Now, I don't know about you, but the older... The older I get, and by the way, I think Solomon, writing later in his life, understands a very real principle. The older we get, often, the more we struggle with frustration, vexation, and anger just by watching the society of what's going on around us. I mean, I, I don't know what your level of what, I mean, like, what is going on around here? I don't know what level of vexation is in your soul and anger and frustration over what is happening, not just in our country, but all over the world today. There is a sense as we get older, we have a tendency to become a cranky old man. And Solomon is, by the way, he's talking particularly to young people, but there is also an application to those of us who've lived a little while, who've seen the world spin a few times, and we say to ourselves, I can't take this anymore. I'd rather go live in a, you know, as a monk somewhere on the side of a mountain and not have to deal with what's going on. Except the problem with that is you can't be salt and light living in isolation on a mountain someplace. Instead, understand that in the midst of a messed up culture, a messed up generation, we have to remove anger from our soul. And we'll talk more about this next week. I have a whole section in next week's sermon. We'll talk a little bit more about this. We often claim, you know, righteous anger. If I was to put a number on it, I probably shouldn't, but it would be like 0.0001% of our anger is actually righteous. Actually, it's righteous, it just happens to be self-righteous anger. And so Solomon here is talking about when I get consumed, and my numbers are probably goofy and I get that, but the point is this, much of our anger is not rooted in what makes God angry, it's just an irritant. It just gets under our skin. Your wife didn't buy the right baby food. Oh, man, lose your blessed mind over it. Solomon says, put this away. He gives us a second impediment here that we need to put away from ourselves. He says, put away pain from your body. Now, this is a very, very interesting word. 
It's actually a debated word to some degree. And when I talked about the word remove, I said that that word is predominantly used to talk about removing sin or removing uh, a sinful path or getting away from a sinful path or sinful decision. This word pain is an interesting word. It can mean simply bad. It can mean displeasing or malignant. It can mean misery. It can mean physical pain, as it's translated here in the ESV. Or it can also be understood as evil, as it's translated in the King James. So if you think about this, you could, you could say it this way. Solomon is talking about evil that produces pain. Now, let's think about this for a moment. As we get older, our pain levels go up or down. Which way do they go? Do you have any joints in your body that do not hurt? I, I'm, I'm with, I, those are gone. I, every joint in my body hurts. I feel like I've been hit by a truck most days. Most of us feel aches and pains as we age. Now, where does that pain come from? Well, hear, hear what I'm saying. In a sense, pain, suffering is in a very general sense the result of Adam's sin. We all, our bodies are breaking down. As we get older, we are physically breaking down. Our bodies are breaking down. We understand that. And when Solomon says, remove your pain, he's not saying mind over matter and just feel good and all of your pain's going to go away. He's not saying that. What he is talking about is don't dwell on it. Like, you know, some people's favorite Friday night activity is to get together and commiserate. Man, what, what anti-pain cream are you using these days? What body part on you hurts worse? Now, he's talking about pain in general, but I want to be a little more specific here and say this. There are times, there are times that our decisions and egregious sinful decisions produce increased amounts of pain in our life. Let me give you an obvious example of that would be someone who is abusing substances. It brings an increased level of pain physically, but it also brings an increased amount of pain emotionally. And very often, when we think about this idea of, of pain, we also know that sin causes pain in the sense that there are times that people sin against us. And we experience, maybe not physical pain, but we experience emotional pain. And so Solomon is saying, God's will for you by a commandment is to remove vexation from your heart, Stop being consumed with anger. Stop dwelling on anger. And stop being consumed, dwelling on your pain. Remove it. Put it away. Now, I think we all would have to admit that that's easy to say sometimes, but a little bit more difficult at times to live. It's hard to not think about our aches and pains. It's time to not think about the emotional pain that we've all have experienced. But we should, if we're going to prepare ourselves to follow God and to follow the path that God has before us, these two impediments must be removed. Now, he's writing as an older man, and I would make application to that to us as older folks. But notice his application doesn't end there. 
He tells us why. Well, because, he says, for or because youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Your youthfulness, your dawn of life, the idea is your prime of life. It's a puff of wind. It doesn't last very long. I walked into the to the visitation with the family this past, uh, I guess it was Wednesday night. And I walk in and I get very much into the back door and, and uh, we've been on staff at that church for a number of years. So we walk in and I'm, I don't know, not even to the back, they have chairs, or just to the back, first back row of chairs. And this little girl, she's like two, runs up to me and puts her arms up for me to pick her up. I did, picked her up told this little girl, she's telling me, I don't speak two-year-old very well anymore, so she's telling me who knows what. And the mother is sitting there like, who, who's this guy, and why is he holding my daughter? Well, then the daughter's dad says, Peach! That was my nickname down there. It was the child of one of the kids that I had as a youth pastor. Beard adult man with children. I felt aged. <laughs> this little girl's talking to me, and I said to her, I said, do you remember me? She goes, uh-huh. She'd never seen me before in her life. So I started walking around to other kids in my youth group. You got kids too? Yeah, four of them. <laughs> like all these little people all over the place. And I'm standing in the pulpit, preaching a funeral, and they're all lined up right over here. And I'm thinking to myself, my kids were that age when we were here, pastoring. My kids used to be two, three years old, running around this place like maniacs, crazy. And now it's their kids who I was their youth pastor when they were in middle school and high school. Just like that. Youth is a vapor. The vexation of poor decisions as kids haunts many people. I've met many, many people who have come to their adult years and they can categorize the pain that they have experienced emotionally through their choices that they regret. They regret not living faithfully for God. They regret not being obedient to God. And that hindrance weighs on them. Here's an interesting fact. I've never met one person who has said, man, I really messed up obeying God all those years. Not one. Because there is this sense of knowing that when I am obeying God, we'll talk about this more in a moment, seeking God's kingdom above all else, I can and experience this joy and wonder of knowing God and understanding who He is. Now, I want you to notice number two of this list. We have to remove vexation, remove pain from our hearts and lives. And Solomon gives us a second piece of instruction here in, in chapter 12, verse 1, when he says this. He says, remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. Solomon commands us here that we are to remember God. We are to keep God in the fore, 
most parts of our brain, of our thinking, and of our thoughts. This word remember, it means to recall or to recall something to memory. Now, I want you to understand something here, is that Solomon is not flippantly saying, yeah, you just need to remember God's word. No, he's not saying it in a sort of cognitive recognition that God is real or that God exists. He's saying something much bigger than that. It would be like on a personal illustration, if I said on January the 21st, hey, today is my anniversary and I remember that, but I don't do anything about it. I don't tell my wife happy anniversary. I don't give her a card. I don't take her out to dinner. I do absolutely nothing about it. I just cognitively say, oh, today's my anniversary and go on with my life. That's remembering, but that's not what Solomon's talking about, about remembering God. Remembering God isn't, yeah, I got the Ten Commandments hanging on my bathroom wall, and it looks really pretty, and it's a great plaque, and wow, I just remember that. This is living it. Recalling it to memory and actually placing it into action and living out God's commandments in my life, in my youth, and even in my age years to make sure that I am living obediently to God's clear commandments in my life. The text that came to my mind was Numbers chapter 15. You may not be familiar with this story, but in the latter part of Numbers 15, we have the account of the man who decided that it would be a really good idea to go out and gather sticks on the Sabbath day. And yet, God had told them very specifically that this was a forbidden action. In fact, the language of the text kind of tells us that this man knew God's commandments, took his fist, shook it in God's face, and said, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. You're not going to tell me that I can't go out and pick up sticks on the Sabbath day. Now, when we sit there and think about on the, you know, on the spectrum of sins, that seems pretty benign. God didn't think so. God actually said, did I not tell you as the Sabbath being the sign of the covenant between God and his people that he had warned them of such activities and God commands Moses to take this man out and stone him? Wow. As one writer said, if we stoned our disobedient children like they did in the Old Testament, there'd be none left. And the picture here was, I told you not to do this. My commandments mean something. They matter. Understanding Old Testament dispensation, we don't stone people anymore. That was a joke. Probably not a good one. But they were commanded to stone this man for his blatant disregard for Scripture. Now, the point is this. Later in that chapter, it says this. Verse 39, and it shall be a tassel for you, this tassel that was supposed to be on their garment, to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord. I'm going to give you this visual reminder to remember. But he doesn't stop there. He said, remember all that the commandments of the Lord, and then notice these next three words, to do them, to actually obey them. And not follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. You say, well, well, wait a minute. Solomon told us to follow our eyes and our hearts. Yes, he did. 
but under certain boundaries and under certain circumstances. This man's goal in his life wasn't to seek the kingdom of God first. His goal wasn't to love his neighbor as himself. His goal wasn't to please God. His goal was to please himself. He wanted to do what he wanted to do, and no one was going to tell him differently. And he was stoned as a result. And God said, I am giving you this visual reminder, this tassel, so that you will remember God's commandments and you will not follow after your selfish desires and you will keep my commandments, verse 40, so you shall remember and do all of my commandments and be holy to your God. That's God's will. Be holy. Obey my commandments. And so to forget our Creator is often to invite bitter regrets into our hearts and into our lives. Solomon isn't promoting a, I'm just going to go out and do whatever I choose to do and do whatever I want to do. He is certainly not promoting that. He is saying to live within these clearly defined boundaries of Scripture. Why? Because youth is short. Youth is a short period of time, and he says to the young to remember God even when they are young. I was talking to one of the, one of the other um, moms down in the, at the service on this past week, and I didn't know her. as one of the wives of one of the sons of the man who, who died, and she said something interesting. She had no idea what I'm preaching this Sunday. She said, you know... She said, I wish when I was young that someone had told me how brief my youth would be. She thought about it for a moment. She goes, well, maybe they did, and I just didn't listen. Just like that. Solomon says, even in your youth, remember God. Remember your Creator. When? All the days of your life, young, old, middle-aged, doesn't matter. Remember God. There's a quote that I want to share in our last couple of moments that's attributed to Augustine. And there's debate whether he said this, the context he said it. I get that. But the quote, I think, is worth thinking about, at least for a moment. This quote is, as I mentioned, attributed to Augustine, who said, Love God and do whatever you please. Now, you probably have heard this quote flippantly, something like this. Well, you know what? Just love God and do what you want. Well, let's keep reading. And he clarifies what he means by that. He says, for the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. In other words, if I love God so intimately and I am seeking his kingdom above all else, I will not choose to do something that will violate his word or will be offensive to the one that I love. In fact, these words, in a sense, correlate with Jesus's words in John 14 verse 15 when he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
It's important to notice, by the way, what this quote does not say. It doesn't say, because God loves you, you can go out and do whatever you please because God is required to cover a multitude of your foolish sins. It's not what it says. In fact, that would be sort of this ideology that Paul was confronting in the book of Romans when Paul wrote this, when he said, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Presuming upon God's grace is a sign of disbelief, unbelief. It's a sign of disregard for God's genuine will in our lives. So these, certainly, these principles certainly don't mean that God is indifferent toward what you believe or how you act or the life choices that you make. God cares very much. But understanding, I can seek God's kingdom first and I can keep God's commandments, these clearly defined decrees, these clearly defined commandments. I can obey them in Delaware, Maryland, Pennsylvania, Florida, Vermont, North Carolina. Those are the six places I've lived. And guess what? I could have been in God's will in every single one of them. If you are seeking first the kingdom of God, removing from my life vexation, removing the tendency to dwell on my pain and suffering that we all experience, and ultimately remembering my creator. So I asked you the question a while ago, can you follow your dreams? It depends. Are your dreams, passions, and giftedness being transformed by a life that is radically God-centered? Are you a person that in your worldview you are so saturated with Scripture that you are making sure each and every decision you make is in accord with God's revealed Word for your life? Before you pursue your dreams, make sure that you are pouring your energy into first being a God-centered person who is radically consumed with seeking God's kingdom first and using God's word as his ultimate or her ultimate source of truth in your life. In other words, what's your motive? Is your motive to get rich, be a billionaire? It's not sinful, as long as it is so you can promote the kingdom of God. I want to live in this place. Well, why? Because you like it or because you have a better opportunity to serve God in that place and a better opportunity to use your giftedness for his glory? Which is it? In fact, I would ask you in closing to just analyze your philosophy of life for just a couple more minutes from the perspective of the Apostle Paul's philosophy of life. I think we would all agree, I hope, that the Apostle Paul was a man who was pretty consumed in his life with, the, with following God's will. And there were times, in fact, that 
He tried to pursue one avenue of ministry, and God did redirect him through circumstances and through events that were outside of his control. In fact, a number of years ago, a long time ago, uh, we were actually in Orlando when we lived there. Um, I was speaking at a conference, and I mean, I'm not the, the greatest conference speaker under heaven, that's for sure, and there was like these quote-unquote, big-name pastors in my session. And I noticed they were, like, fer- fervently taking notes, writing down everything that I said. I'm sort of like, what am I teaching these guys? They've been in ministry longer than, literally, longer than I've been alive. It was weird. Well, I got back to Orlando, and I get a phone call from a good friend of mine. He says, hey, Jay, question for you. Any interest in planting a church in Charlotte, North Carolina? I said, sure. And he starts naming these pastors that were in my session. I was like, yeah, I was wondering why they were there. He goes, oh, yeah, they were sizing you up to see if you were a guy that they might want to work with to go into this church planting venture in Charlotte, near Charlotte. Well, very, very long, complicated story short, there was all this energy. They had like five families there ready to start this church. And I never heard boo back, nothing. And eventually, I was in a conversation with one of the main guys involved in this. He's like, man, he goes, it fell through the cracks. He said, didn't you hear what happened? And he started talking about these circumstances. I had no idea happened. I was in Florida. I didn't know any of the things that were involved. There were some very blatant sinful choices that happened among certain people. And it was this really, the whole thing disintegrated. Well, I walked away and said, that's not God's direction for my life, apparently. And so God certainly does that. But listen to the Apostle Paul's philosophy. Acts 20, verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Is that your passion? Regardless of where you work, regardless of your address, regardless of your career, is it to testify to the gospel of Christ? Romans 15, 20, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named. Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And my personal favorite one is Philippians 2.17, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. If I'm just being poured out, I'm just, just a servant. It's what God's called me to do. So before you follow your dream, Make sure your ultimate goal is to magnify Christ, to bring glory to the Father for the sake of the gospel, to put it simply, make sure that you are seeking first the kingdom of God. And make certain that you are loving Him supremely and loving your neighbor sacrificially. Seek God and His righteousness. Why? Because this is the will of God for you. And when I am relentlessly pursuing what God has dogmatically told me to do, and I love Him, and I am consumed with pleasing Him, then no matter my street address, 
no matter my career, no matter the college, I can say I am exactly within God's will for my life. That's refreshing. Next week, we'll talk through some principles of how do I filter through this, though. We are a culture inundated with choice. How do I do it? It starts with seeking God's kingdom. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time together around this text. Lord, we pray that you would use these ideas and thoughts in our lives to refine us and to direct us toward where you would have us to be and serve. And the passions that we have, the desires and giftedness that you've given to us are certainly an indication of where you would have us to be and how you would want us to invest our lives. And no matter, Lord, where you may lead us and call us, we know that you are, above all, desirous of us to obey your word, your clearly defined commandments and decrees, and to seek your kingdom above all else. Pray that you would now dismiss us with your blessing, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for worshiping with us today. Have a good day.